Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kelborn. Hello, everyone. Hope you're having a good day today. Caroline, can you introduce our delightful repeat guest today? <laughs> yes, I can. This is, a, uh, this is a book. Oh, my goodness. If you want to write, if you're thinking of writing something, you really need to read this book first. The book is You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. And the author is Ruta Sepetti. And she is something else. I'll tell you, this is, I, 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 well, I just can't, I just can't describe this book. You just got to read it. You just got to read it. Welcome back to Writer's Voices, Ruta. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm so happy to be back. Now, Ruta is an internationally acclaimed number one New York Times bestselling author of historical fiction published in over 60 countries and 40 languages. Cepetis is considered a crossover novelist as her books are read by both students and adults worldwide. She's a winner of the Carnegie Medal and is renowned for giving voice to underrepresented history and those who experienced it. However, the book that we're talking about today is a little bit of a departure from that. Its title is You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. So, Ruta, is this your first book of published nonfiction? It is. It is. This is my very first nonfiction book. I know you haven't run out of ideas for historical fiction. So what made you want to write this book? Well, over the years, readers at events always ask me, uh, how do you do what you do? Uh, you know, how do you infuse a, a vivid depth of feeling into your fiction? And I was asked about it so often that I decided to write a book about it. And when the pandemic arrived and I could no longer travel to research my historical novels, I set to work on this. And I tell readers often that to infuse that depth of feeling, I reflect and draw upon my own emotional experiences, my, my, you know, my own memories, um, and that they can do that, too. And so that was the inspiration for writing You, the Story. So the fiction books that you've written and published, are all of them historical fiction? They are, yes. All five novels are historical fiction. Okay. And I believe they're mostly set in Europe. What time periods are they in? Sure. So Between Shades of Grey, my debut novel, is set in 1941, and that is in the region of the Baltic Sea, then to a death camp in Siberia. Out of the Easy is set in 1950 in New Orleans. Uh, Salt to the Sea is set in 1945 in what is now Poland, what used to be East Prussia. And The Fountains of Silence is set in 1957 in Madrid, Spain. And my most recent novel, I Must Betray You, is set in 1989 in Bucharest, Romania. And all five novels uh, touch on underrepresented uh, history. Well, what I love about this book, You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory, is not only are you showing how to use your own memories to bring life 
and detail to a story that may not have anything to do with your own life, but you're also showing the writer or the wannabe writer where to look for subjects to write about. I do, I do. And you do that in a somewhat unusual way. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I I think, you know, some people uh, have a more challenging time identifying story, but truly story is everywhere. What do I mean by that? Every item in your house has a, there's a story attached to it. When I go to an estate sale, yeah, when I go into an estate sale or to the Goodwill, I look at all those items, the shoes, I can look at the heels and see that the owner probably, you know, danced the night away month, you know, month after month and everything has a a story. And so I'm, I'm trying to help readers reframe some of their perspectives and views so they too can identify story in their own life. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really great. And I, I know a lot of the, the, especially if you have some antiques in your house, there's always a story with those. Exactly. Think about it. And not only the story about how you acquired that antique, but maybe the history of where that item lived before, the journey of uh, yeah, the item. Yeah, right. Um, right. Yeah, and they, they all have stories. And that just fascinates me. Now, you're inspiring me, Ruta, because I have in my house a large, beautiful cherry dresser that has a note taped on the back that says it came to Iowa on a covered wagon from Ohio. Yep. What? Yep. What? Yep, it did. That was, that was, in, that was in my family. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my wait. That was in your family. It belonged to someone in your family? Yeah, yeah, my, my grandmother. That's a yeah. book. That that is a book on a covered wagon. Who was with that piece of furniture? You know, where did it start? Where did it originate from? You know, now it makes me want to go back and try and figure that out. You know, we have we're pretty lucky. We have a lot of genealogical information on my mom's side of the family because her mother's aunt, Julia Kading, researched a lot of it, wrote it all out. I don't know if it was 100 years ago, but at least 70 years ago. Might have been more like 100. And there's a lot of stories. Um, She wrote, wrote them in the form of stories. And the ones I really remember were about the Mormons coming through Iowa and passing by the family farm on their way from Nauvoo, Illinois, to Utah. And there's some really interesting stories there. What a gift. What what a gift. Oh, I'm so envious and happy that you have that that information. But, But truly, otherwise, that would be a piece of furniture in your house, and you wouldn't perhaps know that history but all of a sudden it becomes very vivid especially that it says on a covered wagon not just where it came but how it was transported for me that brings so many things to mind and if I were working with a group of creative writing students I would take you know that heirloom that antique from your family and I would have each student 
write a little paragraph about it. And you would, if there were 10 students, you'd have 10 different stories. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this book again, You, This Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. And let's, let's look at, I'd like to talk about the structure of the book. You know, I haven't read a lot of books on writing recently. I used to years ago, I belonged to Writer's Digest Book Club, and I would get books on writing like several times a year. But I think the last one I bought was probably Stephen King's, which is an excellent book. But I feel like the structure of this book is, is unique. Why don't you describe that to us a little bit? Sure. And, and that was a discussion I had with my editor because I am considered a crossover author. So my books are read by students. Um, and, you know, this morning I did a school visit with students in sixth grade. I mean, as, as young as sixth grade, depending on the book that they're reading of mine. And then I have readers. Uh, I do events in senior communities and assisted living facilities. And so I have a the, the age of the readership is, is quite broad. So we discussed how could we uh, put this book together? And we decided that we wanted to make it very accessible and very friendly. I know that people who are very interested in writing will probably pursue MFA programs or writing programs. But what about the people who might not know that they have a story in them to tell? So this, the structure is very simple. You know, there's an introduction and and then the chapters break down the building blocks of story, plot, character development, voice, perspective, setting, dialogue, research, uh, revision and input. And then there's a chapter on creative courage. And in each chapter, in addition to a recap at the end of the chapter, there are writing prompts and there are, there's a section, a page called Stories to Uncover and Discover. Because I have a younger readership as well, students, some of the things that I'm mentioning in the book uh, might be before their time. <laughs> My age is showing here. And, but what, what those are also is when you get to the research section, you realize, because I, I, I spill the beans, and I say, wait a minute, you know, these stories to uncover and discover, they're sneaky research prompts. I'm, I'm hoping that if the reader doesn't know, uh, you know, what the answer is to something I'm asking in the discover and uncover, that they'll research it. Um, so that's kind of how the way the book is put together. Something that is maybe a bit different about this book is um, with all of my novels, I partner with true witnesses and they share their stories with me and I develop those stories and weave them into uh you know, fiction. And so in here, uh, this book, I had to do that, you know, take that exercise on myself, which was really quite vulnerable, and use um, examples from my own life. Because if I am telling people that I truly believe that the sharing of story facilitates, you know, human connection, I have to be willing to do that myself. And so, uh, so I had to dig into some of, of my own experiences and put them on the page. Some are humorous and, and some are kind of sad, but it's all there. And I love that part of the book. Yeah, I yeah, well, really that, felt like I was getting to know you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's life. Oh, some, some things are sad and some things are humorous, let's face it. You're exactly right. And, you know, as I was writing the book, um, 
something happened. And of course, we know that, uh, you know, writing does help us comprehend sometimes. But what happened is, as I was writing, things, experiences that I was describing, uh, when they had happened, oh, they were maybe so heartbreaking or painful. And now as I was writing about them, in, at some points, I was laughing. And I realized so that I was not only writing about a deeply lived experience, but that I was writing about a healed experience. And that was so illuminating for me. And, and I want, you know, um, writers and people who don't even consider themselves writers to have that experience uh, as well, to write to comprehend, you know, what could we comprehend if we write this down? So I think a lot of writers would say that they write to learn what they know, to really gain a, a better understanding yes. of themselves. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I do, I do want to say that I know that the book involves memory. And, you know, let's face it, there are some memories that aren't worth, you know, returning to. And I always say, be gentle with yourself. You know, there's no reason to um, reflect on something that's difficult or hard. But if time has passed and you can view an experience from a different altitude and kind of interview that experience, you know, uh, it could be an interesting exercise. Yes, it sure could. You know, often memoirs seem to be about traumatic experience and probably because readers want something to happen and so they want conflict, they want to see people change and of course trauma brings that about in a big way. So when, I do, when I'm interviewing someone who's written a, a memoir about trauma, I often ask what it was like to have to revisit those experiences, those very painful experiences. And I think that generally people do find it to be yeah, healing. I, I imagine, yeah, I, I imagine, it, you know, it is. And I know some people have asked me, well, you know, I'm hesitant to write about something that happened or about my history because it involves other people or family members or, you know, how would I approach that? And I often respond that um, there are stories that we write, but those aren't always the stories that we publish. So, you know, don't deny yourself the experience of, of writing about, about something uh, that you've been through. Um, and again, right to comprehend, not to condemn, uh, you know, and, and to just to explore that memory a bit. Yes, that's wise advice. So this book is, is really serving multiple purposes. First, it's helping people to figure out what to write about, and then how to write for those who already know what they want to write about but then also how to bring their own memories, their own selves into a story that may be completely different from their own life. Can you give us some examples, Ruta, of how you used your own memories, details from your life, when writing about a story that's set in the far distance past? Yes. So, for example, Poland in the 1940s 
What I would do is I would give myself a memory prompt. Of course, I've, I've done my research and I've interviewed, but I would be writing about uh, winter, January 1945. And I would ask myself, I'd give myself a little sense memory prompt. And I'd think, okay, Ruta, think back to a time. Can you remember a time when you were so cold? You were so cold. And all you could think of was, was, you know, getting warm, finding a place where you could be warm. What did that feel like? A place that when you were so cold and I would think, oh, my, my joints, they, they ached. Or maybe when I did then finally warm up, my hands would burn and tingle. So opening that door to memory, I would try to think of a time that I felt extremely cold, but then I would think, oh yeah, what did it, it, was it snowing? Was it raining? What did that feel like on my skin? Uh, and just try to go deeper and deeper with the experience. And then I would look at what the, the true witness had told me and see if I could marry any of those elements. You know, what they've told me and what I myself have experienced, what it feels like to be freezing. Mm-hmm. Ruta, you've used the phrase true witness a number of times. What does that mean exactly? That means, uh, well, and just for context for uh, your audience, I write about underrepresented history, uh, events that affected a lot of people, but for some reason remain unknown or untold. And to tell those stories, uh, I choose time periods where I have access to the human beings who experienced what I'm writing about. So that could be survivors if it was some some sort of tragedy or or some sort of, um, you know, event during World War II, Uh, family members of victims, family members of survivors, uh, even secondary sources. But generally, true witness means someone who was there uh, and experienced what I was writing about. And they're my co-writers. Um, these true witnesses. In my latest book, I Must Betray You, which is set in 89, 1989, I was an adult and I had access to a lot, a lot of people who experienced the communist regime in Romania. They are the ones who were bringing that story to life uh, through sharing their memories with me. Ruta, would you write about something more recent or do you I, like to stay further in the past? Well, I like to stay generally maybe 25 or 30 years in the past. Why? Um, because I hopefully I still have access to people who experience the event. But also, um, you know, when we're experiencing something like right now, let's say even with the war in Ukraine, It's as if we're looking out of a first floor window. We have a limited view, but with a buffer of time, 25 or 30 years, we have a different altitude. We're no longer looking through a first floor window. We're standing on the roof and we have a 360 view that we didn't have at the time because we can check sources and various news reports and look at different perspectives and evaluate and compare and contrast. And that buffer of time, I feel, reveals the angles to us. And history has many angles, and those angles aren't always immediately apparent. 
You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Ruta Cepetis, author of You, the Story, a Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. Ruta, why did you choose that title? Well, I was thinking about it, and I, in, in trying to, to come up with an introduction even to the book, I was thinking, well, wow, life. Life is story in motion. A day is a story. A year is a story. Uh, a life is a story. And then I thought, you are a story. Um, and that's why I came up with you, the story. <laughs> but it isn't just for someone who writes memoir or wants to write their own life story, is it? Oh, no. Uh, no, actually, the book because I'm a novelist, I would say that the content in the book, the majority of the content, uh, it focuses on adapting uh, memories and, and experiences into fiction to, to create richer uh, fictional environments, more authentic environments, because they have some real feelings you know, behind them. Ruta, we'd love for you to read a little bit from this book, You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. Yeah, I'd love to. And uh, I'd like to read from, uh, from a section of the book that's on perspective. Uh, and I know that we often, you know, hear this term, oh, voice, writer's voice. And voice is an element of writing, but so is vision which is perspective. And I could even argue that maybe vision is more important, that, that that's how we choose to see. And that often frames our life. And it also frames the story and the stories we tell about our life. And, you know, whether it's intentional or not, uh, often the writer's spirit and life experience appear on the page, whether they're writing fiction or nonfiction. And every writer has a different perspective. And that's natural and, and human. So I would ask your audience, you know, if a book was written about your life, what would the title be? You know, how are you framing, how are you framing your memories? How are you framing your, your personal stories? From what perspective? If, you, if you've experienced failure, is that a fascinating forest of exploration <laughs> or no? Is, is it a, a, a doomsday, you know, experience? So what kind of narrative and perspective are you creating and assigning to your past and the world you live in? And the chapter that I'm going to, uh, the few pages that I'm going to read about perspective, I'm wondering if any of you have ever had a, a, a lapse in framing where you thought you understood the perspective and only realize afterward, oh, I was wrong. I didn't understand the perspective. So, so that's what this essay is about. So I'm going to start reading. This essay is called, Let's Run a 5K. I once knew a girl who was born on October 10th. At the time, it was forbidden to share her name. So in my mind, I referred to her by her birthday. 1010. I was volunteering at the prison as an inmate mentor. She was serving time at the prison for armed burglary. 1010 was a 22-year-old white girl from the South who grew up hard and lived even harder. 
Her mother overdosed and died when 1010 was only two years old. By the time she was 16, 1010 had two children. Her father sold heroin, and when money was tight, he sold 1010. By the time I met 1010, she had run not only a drug ring, but also a prostitution ring. She had been arrested countless times, shot twice, and stabbed in the chest. Why do you have to volunteer in a prison, asked my friend. Can't you just run a 5K or donate some money? At the time, I could barely run my saggy ham 50 yards. I was tired of teaching, I was tired of teaching adjuncts at local universities. So I decided to put my teaching time into a prison program, helping inmates study decision-making skills. When I arrived at the prison, I went through intake and fingerprinting with the rest of the mentors. Most were promptly corralled into a visitation area. A few of us were told to wait and informed that we'd be escorted to the maximum security facility. Maximum security? They sat me in a room, handed me 1010's file, and gave me a few minutes to review her information and organize my notes for our first session. I perused the papers, assault, burglary, drug distribution, armed robbery, etc. My pulse began to tick. What was I thinking? I was the queen of fiasco and wrong turns. How could I possibly help someone with decision-making skills? The door buzzed. A prison guard escorted her to the table. Medium height, pale, thin orange jumpsuit, long frayed hair, eyes ringed with black circles and life mileage. She had the look of an angry doll. The guard said it was my choice whether I wanted supervision. I'm fine, I replied, trying to sound cool and relaxed. I felt like I had swallowed a sock. Ten-Ten <laughs> kicked the metal chair into position and sat down. She flipped me a nod. Hey, Snow. Snow? Was she talking to me? I took a breath. I think I gave an introduction. I launched into my monologue about the rules and the program, stuttering that the difference between good decisions and bad decisions could mean life or death, jail or freedom. I was about to begin the standard questionnaire when I noticed the moisture from my fingers seeping through the paper. I wiped my hands on my pants and snuck a look at 1010. He was grinning, leaning back in the chair. She pounced on the pause. You drive drunk, Snow? She stared, unblinking. What? No, I croaked, trying to speak through the sock. You shoplift then, she countered. I shook my head. She dropped forward in the chair, leaned in, and grabbed the rein. Then what's this community service about? It had been three minutes, and I was already failing. I dropped the papers on the table. Let's see. Uh, I want to contribute, but I can't run a 5K. It took a few minutes to register, and then 1010 started laughing uncontrollably. I'm your 5K, baby, she yelled. I'm your charity run. She pointed to her chest. Let the donations begin. I told her that I would be there every Sunday for the next three months, 12, me 12 weeks total, to meet with her. She found that hysterical, too. Three months, yeah. I'll piss you off, and then you'll be out of here. So don't piss me off, I told her. I drove home, completely rattled. 
what if the car accidentally slid into a ditch? If my car was in the shop, I wouldn't be able to go back, right? That evening, I received an email from the program coordinator thanking the mentors for the time. She also reminded us that the inmates participating had independently volunteered for the program. If they completed it, it might improve their library privileges or work detail, but no pressure. Sure. For the next three months, I drove out to the prison each Sunday. I became accustomed to the concertina wire coiling the top of the fence the beeping metal detector, and waiting for 10.10 in the gray-tiled room that smelled like freezer burn. We used her crimes within our lesson plans. After a few meetings, she learned that if we got through the lesson quickly, I was fine to chat for the remaining time. So she'd skate into the room with a grin, fly through the exercises, then complain that she couldn't smoke during our talk time. She asked about my family, and I shared the general descriptions permitted. She was intrigued to learn that my immigrant father had been kicked out of his first high school in Detroit and that my mother had dropped out in order to care for her ailing mother. Yeah, I dropped out too, said Ten Ten. Wait, oh my, I could help. You can earn your GED while you're serving, I said, clasping my hopeful hands together. The prison, the prison has a program. Oh yeah? Your mama ever get her GED, she asked. My momentary silence. It spoke. Ten Ten narrowed her eyes, staring at me. Her expression suddenly softened. Yeah, see, your mama. She was real busy, busy being a good mama. That's what happens, Snow. As the weeks progressed, Ten Ten shared her poetry and told me all about the horror novels she was reading. We joked that we were each going to run a 5K. She said she would do it smoking and handcuffed and still beat me. (laughs) Ten-Ten asked questions about my life and gave advice when I'd share vague details. Sometimes she'd even incorporate the decision-making curriculum. I was so pleased with our session. I was contributing. I felt I was making a difference. That was my perspective. Why do you call me Snow? I finally asked. You even know what snow is? Snow's booger sugar, cocaine. You look like one of those suburban ladies I sold drugs to. She wouldn't change the nickname, said it was too late, unless I wanted to tell her my real name. No, that was against the rules. Ten Ten liked what she, what she called quote stuff. She asked me to bring quotes and read them to her at the end of our session. She'd lean back, bullying the metal chair, paying close attention as I read. She was very opinionated about the quotes and their authors. Khalil Gibran was dismissed as too thick, Rilke too wussy, and Virginia Woolf too quiet. She loved Charles Bukowski and was thrilled when I brought quote stuff from Bukowski's muse, John Fonte. On the rare occasion that something moved her, she'd shove a piece of paper across the table and ask me to write it down. I like my quote stuff deep but simple, she'd tell me. Yeah, she was partial to ferocious simplicity, but she also gravitated toward quotes about relationships, family, and destiny. And so did I. One spring, one spring Sunday, Ten Ten was tired. 
She complained she couldn't sleep the night prior because someone told her it was raining. When it's raining, it's the best time to roll something serious. No one's watching, see. Remember that snow. No one's on guard when it's pouring down rain. The cops, they don't want to get wet. The night I blew down that gas station, it was storming like crazy. I nodded. So, you were thinking about robbery last night? She looked at me, hurt. No snow. I was worried you were out there in the rain and someone might hurt you. It was then that I realized my lens, it wasn't quite calibrated. The inmates who made it through the entire 12 weeks were allowed to attend a graduation party with their mentors and eat vending machine snacks. I presented 1010 with a wrinkled certificate and the bag of pork rinds she had requested. I was definitely more excited than she was. You did it, I said. She looked at me hard and long. Oh, yes, no? Who learned more? We stood silent. I had volunteered for the prison program, thinking I was the one with something to offer. But at that moment, it was painfully clear that I had it all wrong. It wasn't humiliating. It was illuminating. I was the student. Ten Ten was the mentor. She had shared hard-won perspective, perspective on wounds created by both weapons and humans. She had introduced me to an entirely new point of view and taught me so much. When the 30-minute celebration came to an end, she thrust a folded piece of paper at me. Here, take this. She gave a bored sigh. Yeah, well, thanks. Remember, Snow, lock your door when it rains. They escorted her out of the room. She didn't look back at me. When I was finally alone, I opened the small scrap of paper. It said, you are nobody, and I might have been somebody, and the road to each of us is love. <laughs> Quote stuff from John Fonte. Fast, fast forward, fast forward many years. The older I get, the more I interrogate my perspective, both past and present. My prison badge and the memory of 1010 hang in my office. Last night it rained. I made sure the doors were locked. I still haven't run a 5K. <laughs> and that was Ruta Cepetis reading from You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. So, Ruta, how have you used that memory, that story, in your fiction? For example, uh, when I interview people who, by history standards, were perhaps villains at the time, let's say in my book, Between Shades of Grey, which is, tells the story of a 15-year-old Lithuanian girl who's deported to a death camp in Siberia. At that camp in Siberia, there were NKVD prison guards, secret police guards. So in order to tell an accurate uh, story, I need to find testimony from both sides. And so when I interview people, uh, as I said, who were considered villains, I try to pause and say, wait a minute, I'm going to look through their eyes and consider their heart. How does someone become a prison guard all the way 
in Arctic Siberia. That's that's a prison sentence in itself. I mean, what, what kind of a Probably is not by choice, is it? Exactly, exactly. But so I take these experiences in my own life where maybe I've had a lapse in framing or I was too quick uh, to assume something. And I try to get into my characters' hearts and minds and, and say, how would they see this? And, and how can we think critically? How can we walk around this, this whole topic and see all of the angles? And so that's sort of the lesson on perspective. Can you share with us maybe some of the writing prompts yeah. about res- perspective? Yes. So for perspective, um, well, and, and perspective, let's talk about that. As a writer, it's, it's a big choice that you make when you begin to write a story. What is the point of view, the perspective that you're going to choose? Is it, is it first person? Uh, is it third person? Is it omniscient? Is it from the outside in? Is it from the inside out? So what perspective are you choosing? And so in the, the writing prompts, I want to give readers um, you know, some exercises to make them think about that. So uh, here's one that we maybe reflect upon from when we were young. Of course, I wasn't as daring as this, but um, I know people who were. <laughs> so the, the prompt is, you, know, you sneak out of your bedroom window to meet someone that you're not supposed to. Write a few sentences from the following perspective. A, third person limited. So you're writing from the perspective of the parent or guardian who walks into your room and discovers that you're not there. Then write from third person, omniscient, the security camera that records you leaving from the window. And then try writing a couple sentences first person, the person who's waiting for you uh, to leave your house. And so those, those are the kind of um, perspectives. And in the story about 1010 in the writing prompt, you know, I ask, consider the following, um, you know, because I've already been through chapters about plot and character development and conflict layers, like what raises the stakes in that scene? And what's the potential conflict layer? For example, I couldn't tell Ten Ten my real name. I couldn't, we couldn't really be completely honest with each other. Um, and, and what sort of feeling or perspective did the story leave you with? And if you were gonna write about it, what you know, perspective would, would you choose? And then in the writing prompts I ask, Choose a memory. Think back to a time where you might have misjudged the situation. And write just a paragraph or a couple sentences about it. Where, where were you? What happened? What was happening? And why do you think you might have misjudged that situation? So those are some of the um, types of prompts in the book. Again, all opening the door to memory. Could you go a little deeper into this idea, this concept of conflict layers? That's something that you discuss pretty early in the book, and it's something I found really fascinating and not something I really thought about before. Yes. Thank you for asking about that. Um, I don't know if that's often, you know, touched upon, but conflict creates friction in a story. It moves the, not only moves the story forward, but it 
it deepens the story and pulls the reader to the page and keeps them there. So what does that mean? Conflict can exist in your story in, in many ways. It can be, you know, the character against another person, character against nature, character against uh, technology. So let's just say that, um, uh, oh, you, you are in your story that you're writing, the character is going to a big event and has brand new clothes to wear and has, you know, spent money that they didn't have. So in this case, uh, finances can be a conflict layer. You need money for something and you don't have it. You find it. And then, so let's say the character goes and gets this haircut, gets their hair done for this event. And then they walk out the door, a conflict layer, weather, either, it's so windy, or it rains, or those kind of conflict layers. As you're building your story, I want writers to, to think about and, and examine those conflict layers and think about conflict layers and how they've appeared in our own life. For example, um, I'll give a conflict layer. I am uh, an author who tours probably 200 days out of the year so I'm constantly on and off flight. A conflict layer for me, I suffer terribly from air sickness. So imagine the conflict of I have to go get on a plane to go to this event and the conflict of always dealing with getting sick or having to take Dramamine or that, you know, that can be a, a, a conflict layer. Um, conflict layers appear when uh, people have asked us to keep a secret. You know, you, let's say that your, your main character has something that they don't want anyone to know. And then the way that life works, they end up intersecting with this person and that person, you know, helps them in some way. They don't know the person very well, but then what they find out is that person cannot keep a secret. And they've just, you know, confided in someone that can't keep a secret. Oh my gosh, that's a conflict layer. So as you're building your story, think about how you can inject these kind of, of conflict layers. So quite often the plot will have a main conflict, but I feel like what you're suggesting is that you need more than that to make the story interesting. Yes, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, big multiple plot threads, but uh, I, it makes it a bit more compelling and this can just be even like side conflict. You have, let's say you have a group of characters who are, um, you know, taking a ferry from one part uh, of, of a, in Michigan, they're taking a ferry somewhere, right? And there's a storm, a conflict layer is what if one of the characters doesn't know how to swim? It's a reality. I mean, my mom did not know how to swim. That was constantly uh, a conflict layer. Um, that came up. Well, wait a minute. You know, she has three children who are at the lake and she doesn't know how to swim. And so she not only has to watch the children, but what's going to happen if one of us wanders toward the water? And those kind of conflicts exist in our everyday life. It's normal. And it's, it's not, uh, just to, to clarify, a conflict layer isn't a weakness. Um, it's not a, a character trait. It's just, it can even be happenstance. Like I say, weather, 
um, stepping outside. You have you have your family's old photo album, and uh, you're so excited, you know, to to take it next door to show your next door neighbor over coffee um, to show them your parents. And as you're walking, you trip, and maybe it rained that morning. And so instead of the photo album just falling, there's water there. There's it creates conflict. This is a precious album, and oh no, now it's falling into the water. Um, try see where you can inject those conflict layers along the way. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Rudis Sepetis, author of You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, how do writers know when their story is done, when it's ready for publication? I mean, how, how, did, how do they reach that conclusion? To me, that would be very difficult. You know, it, it is difficult. And um, I can only speak for my process. I know that for me, a big part of my writing is revision and rewriting. And I have been part of the same writers group for 20 years. We met through uh, an SCBWI writing conference here in Nashville. And for nearly 20 years, we have exchanged pages. And there are four people in the group. And so I receive feedback independently from four different people. And if they tell me Uh chapter four is slow, chapter four is slow. So if you don't have a writing group, you know, maybe is there someone that you trust that you know also, also, you know, cares about you, someone that, you know, you're close to who will, who will be honest with you and, and, you know, won't tear apart things unnecessarily. And so for me, getting that independent feedback helps me determine how close am I to sending these pages to my agent. And then my agent reads it and my agent tells me if I'm close or not. And then I finally send it to my editor and then my editor will come back um, with lengthy editorial letters. Now, if people are self-publishing or independent publishing, they um, could hire an independent editorial service for a reader report. Give me, give me some feedback on this. And because it's such uh-huh. a good question you've asked, you know, it's such a good question you've asked because the stories often are so fully formed in our mind, especially if we're writing about a personal experience, but we might not be conveying all the details on the page to the reader and the reader might be confused, you know, so it's good to get that mm-hmm. third party input. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, that would be, a, that would be, you know, difficult because you think it's done, but someone else looks at it and says, no, this is not done. And then. So you have to rewrite. Is rewriting difficult? Is that hard to do? It's my, fa- it's my favorite part. It's my favorite part oh. because oh. When, I put, when I put the book down for a while, when I go back to it, I see things differently. You know, I, I, I was so close to it maybe that I didn't see very clearly that I had repeated a couple words a few times. I love rewriting. Oh, good. <laughs> so how do you compare or which do you prefer the research or the actual writing? Oh, I, my, my favorite part is the research. I am still thinking about that piece of furniture that you own with the note taped to the back. This came via a covered wagon. For, and, and for me, I know for some listeners, research, that word might sound daunting. So swap that word for investigation. And I think, oh my gosh, I'm going to investigate 
Monica and Caroline, <laughs> piece of furniture. I'm gonna I'm gonna learn more about their family. Who would be the most likely person in your family to have owned that? What room would it be in? What items would be in the drawers? Have you ever pulled the drawers out to see if there are ever any markings on the drawers or if any of the drawers are the original drawers or if they're replacements of, oh, I, I love the research. It's my favorite <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure they're all the originals. You know, we actually have a lot of family heirlooms because there were some people in the family who were, I don't know, shall we say, a little bit pack rats yeah, and yeah. it's cool it's 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 great to have those things now it, yeah, it now, now they now they're now you, now you're accused of being a hoarder if you do stuff like that but i i tell them i'm not a hoarder i just i just keep the things that are that are important that's what it, i do well, <laughs> and not only that though those those items you know, also contain your story. Like I said, every single item. And okay, so maybe it's not, it didn't come on a covered wagon, but even so, I know that there are certain items. And I wonder if your listeners have this too. Can you remember, you know, an item from your childhood that was in your kitchen, that was in your family mm -hmm. kitchen? We had this mm -hmm. yellow popcorn bowl, that the yellow popcorn bowl. I still have that, and no one's taking that yellow popcorn bowl away from me. <laughs> was it yellow on the outside exactly. and white on the inside? No, it was one of those big uh, yellow plastic ones. It was probably came from a Tupperware party in the 70s or something. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys there you go. have anything? Do you remember anything from you know your childhood that was in your family kitchen? Oh, heaven, so many things. Well, like one, my Dad had one of those 60s era juicers that he used to make wheatgrass juice, which I oh, absolutely yeah. despised. So I definitely remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and did anyone yeah. keep that juicer? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Although later on, I bought, I had one that was very similar to that, but pretty sure it wasn't my dad's original champion oh juicer. That would be such an interesting um, story, short story to write about how, how you, your perspective, how you saw that juicer, how, oh, wheatgrass, you didn't like it. And now perhaps how you love fresh I juice. I mean, you yeah. have, no, not wheatgrass. Yeah, exactly. And how that, how that changed, you know, our pers perspectives change over the years. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have quite a number of things in my kitchen today that came from my grandmother's. Um, one of them is a white enamelware enamel pitcher that I use to hold my wooden spoons and so forth. Uh-huh. And do you remember how your grandmother used it? Did she use it the same way or did she use it as a pitcher? I don't know. I'm not sure that she actually used it. It might have just been sitting around somewhere. I also have this greatest jar opener. It actually says world's greatest KitchenAid jar lid and bottle opener on the box, which I still keep it in, in my drawer. And not oh. only was it my grandmother's, but it was a campaign giveaway. And printed on it is used by a friend of Mary McNear. 
oh my goodness, but not only is it, is it actually practical, but think of the story. I mean, that story is right there on it. I mean, my goodness. You, there's no wondering. I should investigate Mary yes. McNear of Newton, Iowa. Yes, and absolutely see should. If I can figure I out what she was what running was the trajectory for. trajectory of that campaign. And, you know, and also where were things like that given out? Was there some sort of a rally or a, oh, I think that's, that's fascinating. And I love that you still use it. Ruta, you are so inspiring. It's like well, I can think of all these stories and this well, book. And you, the I story, want, is again, so inspiring. I'm ask, you know, your listeners, if a book was written about your life, what would the title be? And would would you write the book, or would you want someone else to write the book? If so, who and why would you want them to write your you know your story? And and you know what would the cover look like? And I just love that, that exercise. Um, so yeah, I have to think of my own title. I guess it's you, the story, right? <laughs> yeah. What would your title be, Ruta? Well, I guess um, mine would be, I think mine would be, I got lucky. I, 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 yeah, I, you know, I'd have to, uh, I'd really have to give it some thought. My, my, my life journey has been interesting. I spent 22 years in the music business before becoming a novelist. You know, I was helping songwriters and artists and bands tell stories through music and, uh, and realized that when they put a piece of their own story into their song, it was more likely to become successful. It was more authentic. It was more resonant. So even back then, I was in my own way with these musicians, you know, infusing memory and story into their songs, you know, and now I'm... I'm doing it myself. So I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I think my title might have something to do with, with my prior life in the music business. Oh, yes. But you've done some other really interesting things, too. You have spoken, presented to NATO, uh, the European Parliament, the U.S. Capitol, the Library of Congress, and embassies worldwide. What are you speaking to them about? What I'm speaking to them about um, is that Knowledge of story facilitates human understanding. And what do I mean by that? If we don't know each other's story, we're constantly misjudging each other. When I spoke at European Parliament, I spoke about my book, Between Shades of Grey, that tells the story of how Lithuania was occupied by the Soviet Union for 50 years. And not only that, but how many Lithuanians were deported to these prisons in Siberia. And when I spoke about the book, there was a parliament member from Greece who during the Q&A said, I'm just going to admit this. Uh, I knew that Lithuania was Soviet occupied, but I didn't know that Lithuanians were brutalized and exiled to these camps. And he said, and now that I know that, I, I better understand. He said, when we go to parliament sessions, he said, it's kind of become a joke that Lithuanians always want to talk about energy independence, energy independence. And he turned to the Lithuanian delegation and he said, you know, I understand now. You don't want to rely uh, on your energy or buy your energy from the country that occupied you for half a century. You want to provide for yourself. You know, you don't want to be vulnerable to them. And he said, I'm sorry, I didn't fully understand your story. And I thought, oh my goodness, these people, they're forging the path forward in the future, parliament members, and they don't know each other's story. Think about how much progress we could make if we know 
uh, if you have a better sense of, of one another, how we might be able to bridge the width between us um, as, as countries, as community members, you know. So that's also part of the inspiration for writing you the story. That is so moving. And it makes yes. me think even today, maybe if people understood mm. the story, knew the story of the people flocking to our borders, our immigrants today, maybe they'd have more empathy. You're exactly yes. right. Um, you're exactly right. And that even happened, you know, to my to my own father um, when he came from Lithuania. People didn't understand his story and he he said he didn't want to burden people with the story. But in denying them the story, we're, we're you know, I don't know, prohibiting people from using their greatest gifts as human beings of, as you say, empathy and compassion. I truly believe that that people want to be compassionate, but sometimes they just, they don't know the story. I think of this all the time. I, I know some of my neighbors, but I don't know all of my neighbors on the streets. And would we be a stronger community if we did know each other? Maybe we wouldn't be frightened of people wandering into our yard or we would know one another, you yeah. know? Right, um, and right. And our, our, yeah. make our community safer um, and more compassionate and more supportive. So this is what can happen um, if we share our story. Ruta, that is a great note to end with. Thanks so much for joining us on Writer's Voices today. And Caroline, do you have any closing <laughs> words for us? Well, unfortunately, she took them in the very beginning, but I'm going to do it again anyway. <laughs> a day is a story. A year is a story. A life is a story. You are a story. And that's very true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye. They'd have more empathy. <laughs> <laughs>